This is Rob Cutner, and you're watching the TV Writer Podcast. We have main engine start. Two, one. Booster ignition and liftoff. Countdown to launch. Stall TV 2010 on the TV Writer Podcast, partner of Script Magazine. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for script writing information in print and on the web. And by Final Draft Script Writing Software, the entertainment industry standard for script writing worldwide. My name's Gray Jones, and I want to welcome you to the TV Writer Podcast, partner of Script Magazine, episode 5 for Thursday, October 7th, 2010. Today, we have the privilege of speaking to writer Rob Kuttner, who is a five-time Emmy Award winner and a comedy writer for shows like The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, Dennis Miller Live, the upcoming Conan O'Brien show, and much, much more. I think you're going to love the interview, so let's just dive right in. This is great, and I'm here with five-time Emmy winner, Grammy winner, Peabody winner, and Super Jew Rob Kuttner. How you doing, Rob? Hey. Good. <laughs> and you're the, uh, just to catch everybody up, uh, writer for uh, Conan O'Brien. You've written for D The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. And also, uh, you recently wrote the national bestseller, Apocalypse How. That's right. And so you're a busy guy. <laughs> well, I like to keep the, uh, like the Indardies on the run. <laughs> Very cool. So we'll, we'll get to a bunch of that uh, eventually. But first, uh, why don't we start off with uh, what I think everybody loves hearing is um, is how you got started at the beginning end. You were born in Atlanta? Yes. And uh, what, at what point did you get the writing bug? Well, I think part of it was that uh, I'm Jewish and I went to um, a Christian school from kindergarten all the way to 12th grade. And so I already started to feel like a little bit out of place. And I think that's kind of an important psychological frame of mind to be in if you want to go into comedy. Mm -hmm. um, I probably started specifically, uh, well, actually, um, uh, when I was in kindergarten, I kept getting thrown out in the uh, hall by the teacher because I thought everything was hilarious, and it was just my foolish classmates and teachers didn't realize that they were. Mm -hmm. So for years, uh, I thought the sketch group kids in the hall was, was just kids who were like me, that same uh, like-minded uh, malcontent. It turns out it, it actually... Um, they're named after the um, the young aspiring writers who would hang out in the backstage and sell the vaudeville um, performers uh, or the Catskills performers jokes. So that was actually cool too. Wow, very cool. And now you went to Princeton University. Uh, what did you study there? I studied comedyology and humorology. Now, um, they didn't. Uh, I would say Princeton had a, was a great classical level education. They didn't have uh, such a strong orientation towards. The kind of things I'm doing now, I took like sort of creative writing classes, writing short stories and the like. But I majored in anthropology and Russian studies. So, um, and, you know, this is I, something I suggest for people who are doing any kind of writing is to, is to focus on getting like a broad education because you know you'll learn what you need to learn for the trade. You know, out here working in the trenches, but I think it helps to have like like a rich and wide you know knowledge base uh, and experience of the world to, to draw upon for your writing. Absolutely, yeah. You can't write comedy in a box. Not that I knew that at the time, but looking back, you know, mm -hmm. tell my older self, tell my younger self, keep doing it. <laughs> now, speaking of widening your scope, um, you actually lived in St. Petersburg, Russia. Uh, at what point was that? Yes, if you can call it living. Um, <laughs> well, yes, yeah, so I minored in Russian studies, and I had a chance to go uh, abroad for a semester 
Lutheran College. And um, uh, that was also just a fantastic experience. And if you have the chance to do that in any capacity in for a short amount of time, it's just, you know, it widens your perspective. Um, I had just started studying Russian, and um, I was sent to live with a family that didn't really speak English. And that's really the way to do it. Mm-hmm. They throw you in tongue first, as it were. Yep, absolutely. And you were deported from Uzbekistan. Uh, I thought we were going to talk about that. <laughs> we specifically said we were going to talk about any deportations from Central Asian countries. That was from my writer. Um, <laughs> okay. Yes, I, I was. Um, uh, I started studying one of the uh, ethnic communities in in Uzbekistan as part of my anthropology work, and I was um, I brought a crew in and we were doing a documentary. And this was still sort of in the post-Soviet heyday, so there's a lot of corruption and people wanting your your dollars. So I kept being asked for bribes left and right, and I had visa troubles. And long story short, is I decided one day to just stop paying all the bribes. And I said, hey, you know what? I don't have any money left. I'm just a student. They said, okay, well, what day were you planning to leave? <laughs> okay, we'll just mark your deportation on your passport. And then I brought it home to show my uh, host family. And they said, hey, how do we get one of those? Wow. Um, and so you, you obviously came back, and at your first IMDb credit is uh, – Dennis Miller live in 2000, but I imagine there's a lot of stuff in between. What what, what was in between getting that gig and and uh, and when you left uh, Princeton? Well, well, that was I would say that was really like the uh, that was the the trying to break in period and the lean times. I was doing a little bit of everything. Um, I had a sort of part time job writing TV ads for Disney Home Video for this company, which was a good job because I could do it. I could do nighttime hours and occasional weekend hours, and that would leave me time during the day when I was fresh to work on my writing. And so I was writing all kinds of screenplays and spec scripts. And um, on the side, I was I was uh, sending in some jokes to my friend who was a writer's assistant on Desmond Alive. And I didn't get any on the air, but a few of them got some notice uh, from Dennis, I, I was told. Um, and then a few years later, um, uh, I was out of work, and he got promoted to a writer on that show, and they were looking for another assistant. So he referred me, and um, uh, I think the head writer had remembered that I, you know, I had some possible promise, um, and so they brought me in to be an assistant, which was, you know, as you probably know, is sort of like being a secretary to the writers. But in certain shows like that one, um, there are opportunities to skip ahead a little bit. I think you're going to probably ask some ways to break in. That's one of the ways that I would suggest if you can get a writer's assistant job. That's sort of one of the main uh, avenues into becoming a writer. In some situations, um, it's sort of regarded as an apprentice job to some extent, and that was the case with Dennis Miller. Um, basically, I was a secretary to the writers, but when I had some time in between my responsibilities, I could pitch my own jokes anonymously and throw them into the pile. And then there would start to come some times when um, you know the room was stuck on something, and um, I, I would verbally pitch something, and Dennis started to notice some of the things I wrote and was were saying, and uh, two years later, um, there was a vacancy because one of the senior writers left, and so at that point, Dennis decided to move me up into um, to writer. So, you know, that doesn't necessarily happen in every show. Sometimes people are um, more, uh, they regard their assistance as just assistance, but, you know, if you're fortunate enough to get a situation where they're trying to promote from within, um, that's certainly a way to go. And I'm always be grateful to Dennis for giving me my, my first break. Mm-hmm. And you were, you were there for 78 episodes? Well, I didn't count, but you make it sound like a prison sentence. I was marking them <laughs> off on that. <laughs> um, yeah. I was there for, for three HBO seasons, which is something. Yeah, it's like 20-something, 20 yeah. 26. 
if I were to use math, at three years, which is like these sort of like half year seasons that they do on cable. Mm -hmm. So that must have been a tremendous experience. Uh, I mean, I'm, I imagine the uh, from what I understand about about the the process in these shows, it, there's just a lot of bandying jokes around. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just like just these brilliant, cracked up geniuses that I was working with, and I learned so much from. Like, you know, we would we would sit at lunch, and for some reason, the, the game was like uh, we'd think of um, you know gay name gay names for Holocaust concentration camps. I mean, it was just like the kind of <laughs> psychotic, disturbing like wordplay and, and banter that, that we get in, and that was just like in our off time. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, it was a pretty concentrated work environment. Like, we would all go to offices and work, and then Dennis would come on Friday for the show day, and we'd sort of sit around, and, and he'd abuse us for about 45 minutes. He'd go around the room one by one and abuse us in the most um, uh, erudite and verbally high-flown way that you'd imagine. <laughs> um, and then we'd get into the show, and then there was sort of um, uh, kind of a real kind of pressure cooker atmosphere. But I think it was good, because it really concentrates the mind. Mm -hmm. And And so... What did you take away from that process on, on future shows? I went from there right to the, the, the Daily Show as my next job. I don't mean I went right to it, but I mean, mm -hmm. um, I applied and wrote a bunch of writing samples and went through a whole process. And then my, the next job I went to when the Dennis Miller show was canceled was the Daily Show. And, you know, every show has a different environment for working. So the Daily Show is it's just generally more collaborative. And that was really, that's really more of a bantery atmosphere, I would say. Mm -hmm. We had these morning meetings where we watched the footage. And John comes in and just like, just the ideas and usually stuff that's not really relevant, but is making everyone laugh is what's, is what's going. But that all kind of, you know, juices up the system. So, um, you know, if you were looking at it like a Japanese productivity expert, it wouldn't be the most efficient process. But I think you need to go through all that, you know, to, to get to the good stuff. So there's just like a freewheeling, there's probably 25 people in the meeting, writers and producers and all kinds of people. Um, so that's very collaborative. And then you go off and write something a little bit, and then it goes back into a collaborative process where a couple of people are sort of beating through the script and rewriting it. Um, and then that's different from Conan, I think, in a way, too, the Tonight Show and the current one, where I'm, I'm a monologue writer, and so I sort of work individually mm -hmm. and write my jokes. And then, um, But right now what we're doing is we're pitching ideas for the new show. So we're all kind of meeting together and just sitting around, pitching all kinds of ideas, and then like the, they'll get like bumped around the room and people will go off on all kinds of tangents. And sometimes we'll come up with a completely different take than we started out with. Mm -hmm. So there's all different variations on it. So it sounds like it's a it's a very fun process, but it's at the same time high pressure. Yeah, there is there's some element of both those things. I mean, like you know, if you if you everyone I think has a dry day now and then where like you're just not on, and so you know you can afford to um, sort of sit back and listen a little bit more some days than others, and other days you're going to be wired up, and hopefully you'll be providing some of the ideas. So I think it's not like a constant need to deliver ideas. It's just that you sort of have to be part of this team where you kind of rotate through contributing your share when you feel, you know, inspired to. Mm -hmm. Now, you've also written um, humor and feature pieces for The Washington Post, New York Times, LA Times, Esquire, Maxim. Um, can you talk about how that integrates? Like, I, I mean, you, at the same time, you did over a thousand episodes of uh, The Daily Show. Um, how did you get time to do this other stuff? What is it? What is it with you in the count? The county of episodes. <laughs> um, I feel like you're reporting to a Japanese productivity expert somewhere. But um, <laughs> I, what you're talking about a lot is is primarily uh, pieces that I wrote when I was when I was trying to break into the TV industry. So mm -hmm. um, there's probably a good five year period from when I set foot in LA 
and I was even starting before that. I was writing. Um, I actually spent a year studying at a yeshiva in Israel, and I was also working on a Fraser spec script, as you can imagine, at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of getting a, a taste for it early. But um, what I did while I was, you know, pounding the pavement and trying to make contacts and trying to get a foot in the door in L.A. was I was pitching freelance pieces to. Uh, like you said, like the Times and uh, Maxim was a good employer for a while because you could do these crazy sidebar pieces. Like I had one on like how to start your own boy bands or what to do with the <laughs> Razor Scooter now that they're not cool anymore. Um, you could do things like that, and they paid pretty well back back when we had, back when we had magazines and newspapers. Yeah. Um, so I mean, so freelancing was a way to both try to stay creative and also to you know get a little money. Um, you know, um, it's. That's that's its own has its own set of challenges. It's trying to break into those things. But you know, if if you have friends who work for those things, or you know people who know people, and you're very persistent as you have to be, you can you can pitch a bunch of times, and maybe you'll finally get a hit. You know, and then you you get a clip, and then you get another clip, and then if you say I wrote something for Washington Post, that can help open another door. And you know, I, that was a career I could have pursued, become more a writer, but it wasn't really my main one, so I mm-hmm. didn't stay with it. But I just sort of used it to help pay the bills. Mm-hmm. Cool. Now, we'll get to Apocalypse How a little bit later, but first, um, I'd love to talk a little bit about your process, and in particular, the process of comedy writing, because it's it's uh, very different than the process of writing for for dramatic shows and, and that kind of thing. Um, one right. one question that comes up as I've uh, I've read a couple of comedy books is um, there's a strong opinion out there that if you want to write comedy, you have to do stand up. How, how do you feel about that? Uh, I don't think that's so clear cut. I would say um, I think it helps. I mean, I really didn't do very much of it. I've, I'm at best a dilettante, and I, I could probably say I've gone out maybe ten times in my life. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely people who come out of that back end. I think if you're um, if you're someone who like knows that you're a funny person and you're thinking about how to write jokes and how to find your voice and to do all that, I think it's a good exercise because it's sort of the best focus group you can imagine. And, and really tough audience, which mm-hmm. I think is a good way to test how thick your skin is, because I can't emphasize enough like how tough you have to be against rejection and indifference, because you're just going to face that. You're trying to break into the entertainment industry, just years and years of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but those open mic nights are just brutal, but I think they can be a good training ground. Um, I think I was someone who sort of started out a little bit earlier in life, doing a lot of writing of all kinds, and like already focusing on, on what kinds of writing I was going to do, um, I started out with a writing partner whose brother had become a writer on The Simpsons, and so I had maybe more of an idea of exactly what I wanted to do earlier. Um, but I think if you're just sort of exploring it as something you want to do, I think it's a good way to like really get your feet wet and test out how to make people laugh and how to write jokes and that sort of thing. And I think it can be really valuable. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's absolutely necessary, but I think it can be a great uh, asset. Mm-hmm. And now I know with uh, with dramatic writing and, and feature writing, they always recommend... Um, writing groups, um, but are there are there places that you can meet with other people that are that are trying to write comedy? I don't I don't actually agree with that suggestion. I don't find I think writing groups tend to be sort of either like uh, backcatting sessions or people sort of all out to get each other and sort of like passive aggressively tearing each other down. Like I don't I'm sure there are good ones that are that, that work, but my my experience with writing groups has been their sort of um, more like, you know, therapy sessions or support groups. Um, I think the better thing to do is to find, like, a handful of people um, who you think are good readers and good critics. Um, they can be friends. It might be good if they're not, like, your best friends or, like, mm-hmm. definitely not your mom. 
because they're going to think whatever you do is awesome. Um, maybe pe- just people you think who are, who are definitely have a critical bone and, and can articulate what they like and don't like about something. And maybe, you know, maybe some of them are in the industry as well and are doing the same thing as you. It's, it's always good to trade scripts with people who are trying to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. But also some people who are just like, you know, the, the audience that you're hoping to get one day, like smart people that, you know, can give thoughtful feedback. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, um, I'm going to pop in a few Twitter questions as we go. Uh, one of them is, uh, from, let's pull up my Twitter here, uh, from Anthony who asks, uh, what's the best way to pitch a script? If you don't have a production company, I have an original idea. Um, well, that's a real tough question. I mean, that is kind of the, the challenge for everybody. I mean, even uh, people who are really accomplished are always, like, facing the new challenge of how to get your attention with something. I mean, the first thing is when you say you're trying to pitch an idea, I mean, you definitely have to have a script if you're not an established writer. Like, you, and even if it's not necessarily the thing you're trying to sell, you need to have, like, a really good sample of screenplay or spec script or pilot script um, so that... Because otherwise, you're just some guy walking in the door saying, "Hey, wouldn't it be great if we could do so and so?" You know, for a show, you you don't you have to show that you can actually execute it. Um, you know, otherwise, you're like the, you're like your dad's friend who comes up to you and says, "Hey, I got a great idea for a sitcom. My workplace is crazy." You're mm-hmm. sort of like one step removed from that. Um, so the most important thing is to have written something. Um, and I think to get to that point, you're probably going to have to write a bunch of things that we'll never see the light of day. I, I mean, I certainly did. I've probably written, I think, seven or eight screenplays that very few people have seen, and um, uh, I'm going to say maybe like 13 or 14 TV spec scripts, only a few of which have been part of anything, uh, maybe even more than that. You really have to like exercise the muscle to get to the point where you have a really good sample um, that you can show people to represent your work, and if you reach that point, that can get you um, work. People will want to meet with you and hear your other ideas, if not necessarily that one. So, in a way, you, you don't start with the pitch. The pitch is the kind of like how you close the deal once you've gotten your foot in the door with the actual execution. Mm-hmm. And I and I guess a question along the same lines from Adam Keel is, what's your recommendation for someone who wants to write comedy professionally but didn't go to school for it? And I'll, I'll pepper in there. Um, I know there are a number of, of books about about uh, comedy writing. Would you recommend them, and, and what else would you recommend? Okay, well, I think, I think you may have gotten a sense from my earlier answer about um, – my own education is that I think you definitely don't need to get a college or graduate level education to do it. I mean, I think in some cases it can be a helpful environment mm-hmm. for structure and like deadlines and having a good feedback group. But I also think that you can also construct those things in your own life. And in a way it's better for you to do that, to create your own set of disciplines and find people who can give you good feedback because I think that sort of helps your long-term process. Um, and, you know, if you're going to think you're going to grad school to get an MFA or something like that, you're talking about saddling yourself with a lot of debt only to come out two or three years later and just be a PA like, like everyone else, a production mm-hmm. assistant, which you could have just done without going to grad school. So I'm, I'm not a big proponent of that. I mean, I think it can be helpful, but I think you definitely might be better off doing it, you know, through experience. As far as books, there, there's, there's just a handful that I really like. Um, my favorite by far is called The Comic Toolbox by uh, John Vorhaus, V-O-R-H-A-U-S. And that's that's a re- sort of a, he just, he's, a, he's an accomplished sitcom writer. He's written for a lot of great shows like, uh, I think, Head of the Class and uh, Barney Miller and some other uh, classic shows. Um, but he also um, is really good at explaining how to do it, which is not, you usually don't find this, you know, those who can't do, teach 
because you can't, you know, that sort of thing. He can do both. And um, I always go back to that guy as a reference for writing sketches or sitcoms or features. Mm-hmm. Um, the For a screenplay writer, I think a really good one is um, called The Writer's Journey by Christopher Vogler, V-O-G-L-E-R, which sort of boils down the screenplay story into, like, the archetypes of, like, the hero's journey the Joseph Campbell. And that's something that uh, Hollywood sort of follows. Uh, like, Disney has given all its executives a boiled-down version of that book, but I find it really helps the way you think about the story. Um, there's a new book called Save the Cat by Blake Snyder that people are really into for features right now, and I think it's very helpful for some people as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I've just been holding up the books as you... Uh... <laughs> As you mentioned, them. Oh, you have them all on your. Uh... Yeah, I have them all on my shelf. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah great, great, uh, great recommendation. I, I'm definitely a proponent of, of of reading a lot of books. Well, I don't, I don't think they're all necessarily valuable because some of them I think are more a little bit more abstract or maybe a little bit dated in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. But I feel like I, I can stand by the ones that I suggested as having sort of timeless advice. Yeah, and uh, another a uh, couple of questions here from Twitter. Um, I think this one actually ties in a little bit to what uh, I'm I'm thinking for a question. Jason McCraw asks, how do you find time to write in between all those ingenious nonstop tweets? <laughs> well, you know, that's, there's sort of a balance that I'm still trying to strike with that. I wouldn't say I've had it. I think, I think Twitter I'm having a little bit too much fun on. Um, when I was unemployed between, between Conan's, as they say, um, I had about seven months there, and I didn't really have an outlet. And uh, Twitter is like this, like, this like morphine drip of validation for you write a joke and like some stranger, uh, I think very often Jason McCraw, in fact, um, will, will like retweet it or, or, or respond to it, something like that. And so it's like this very like needy, neurotic, um, broken comedy writer's crutch. Um, I think in a way, like if I should probably have done less of it and I could have gotten more done in a real project. So it's definitely like a challenge and a, um, a balance. I would say though, in the same way that I talked about stand up, that, um, if you're starting out, it can be a good way to test material on people. Like if you start writing stuff that gets a response or you start gathering a following, I think that can be a good way to sort of see what people are responding to and what, what kind of jokes will work for you and that come naturally out of you. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, and my question is, particularly with shows like um, like Jon Stewart and, and Conan O'Brien, I, I am amazed by the level of just political references and pop culture and and it seems like as a comedy writer you must have to do a lot of research on that stuff well i mean there's 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 a blend i mean like we have to um the daily show certainly what we have to do is kind of bone up on issues and we had this fantastic researcher named adam chadikoff who's the producer on the show and he's like the sort of brain of the show like he remembers all that has happened politically but he also would supply all the research and information and so if we were really delving into the story we'd have to read up on it that day, like, you know, quick homework assignment. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the pop culture stuff, I mean, you can't really, like, research every movie, um, but I think you'll find in, in a typical comedy room, the kind of people who do that tend to be, like, all comedy, you know, pop culture nerds, and there's definitely people who are also walking encyclopedias of, like, every 80s sitcom or, like, you know, every obscure movie, and, you know, to be conversant with the stuff that's coming out as well, too, I think you have to just sort of keep up. You know, I, I think... You don't want to be a monk here. You have to be like sort of plugged into the culture in order to do it, in order mm-hmm. to help create it. Yeah, and uh, and Jack and Pollux has a, a funny question: How stoned do you have to get to produce your best TV writing? <laughs> 
Well, um, if you mean stoned by the angry mobs, I think that's a, a sign of validation, certainly, that you're doing something right. Uh, if you mean the, the conventional kind, or as they call it, glaucoma treatment here in California, mm-hmm. um, I think it's actually, I honestly think it's, um, it's certainly something I've indulged in, but I think it's actually not a great idea for, mm-hmm. um, for writing, because I think that, um, you know, people around like, oh yeah, it makes you free and creative, but I think in the fact you have to, marry your free-ranging creativity to, like, a sort of discipline and, like, uh, I mean, you know, writing jokes is um, a very focused activity, and I think also definitely writing scripts and structure and all that, like, you can, if you sort of get unfocused, you get you get a mess, mm-hmm. you know, so I think, I think you know, I certainly don't have a problem with recreational use, but I don't recommend it to, to anyone. Now, Benadryl, that's a different story entirely. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think allergies are not helpful to any writer. Um, Especially children. Yeah. Um, Joanna Nuval asks, has the rise of websites such as YouTube or Funny or Die shifted the writing focus to create edgier viral videos? And if so, how? Um, I think it's definitely like created a market for that and a model that, um, you know, like like I was saying, you need to write scripts and all that to have your samples. And I think nowadays people can make videos that can make samples. You know, Funny or Die has raised the bar in terms of production values, which, you know, means that these things really have to look polished. And um, nowadays people want, like, someone famous in it. But I think if you do something really good and original, um, it can stand for your work. Um, you know, maybe YouTube has lowered the bar in the other direction, where, like, you know, <laughs> if, if you have a cat basically in a camera, then you've got a YouTube video. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, it's definitely lowered the barrier in a way that everyone can... can um, do it, and if you live in a place, you know, whether it's New York or L.A. or even like Austin or San Francisco or Boston, where there's creative people around who have skills and have equipment, and you know, maybe they work at a regular job, but they want to do something creative. I would say try to find people like that and put your own thing together, because there's a lot of there's a lot of talent out there, and there's only so many outlets. But you know, people will do fun projects, and if you're all just trying to make your name a name for yourself, um, I think that's something that's very doable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I I know I definitely have heard that. Um, well, obviously you've got to produce something of quality, but uh, producing your own web series, if you can make it work and get get an audience, that's definitely one other way that uh, that you can get noticed that might not have been a- available ten or fifteen years ago. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think I think creating a series is very hard. Uh, creating a good one, um, you know, I've had a couple of shots at it, and. Uh, I haven't always been happy with how it turned out. So, I mean, you have to really have something that will sustain and that you can do um, fairly easily and cheaply and that has a sort of, like, you know, page-turning suspense value that people want to come back to and that stands out for everything else. So there's a lot um, to do in terms of doing that right. Um, but um, I, th- I think even just doing a one-off that has a lot of richness to it and has a lot of originality mm-hmm. is a good way to go as well. And it might be a little bit more doable if you've never yeah and uh and uh one quick question and i do want to just get a couple of quick comments about your book um lady fantastic asks why aren't the writers of a show always credited do industry people know they write on a show well i think they actually are it's just that if you look nowadays like they they make the credits so tiny and so fast like um like if you're you know if you're watching the end of Mad Men and they show next week and suddenly like the credits right become like two point size <laughs> yeah. tiny these like tiny scrawls on the screen. So basically if you have a DVR you can usually find anyone's credits. There's probably a couple of cases where the shows are not um, 
Writers Guild signatory, which means they're not necessarily required to show the writers or the staff, or more often the case is they don't call them writers, they call them producers. So you might actually see a lot of shows like this, all kinds of people named producers, usually a consulting producer, supervising mm-hmm. producer, that's or, or even consultant, especially on like the cable, like the VH1 type shows, you'll see that. Um, or like I have some friends who write for The Soup, but they don't call them writers because they're not, they're not a Writers Guild show. So, you know, a lot of times the producer title will actually mess that. So I think in most cases... Um, people do get credited, but sometimes you just have to do a little work to find it. And as far as does the industry know, I mean, the industry doesn't really watch credits. The industry goes by IMDb, and, you know, if you're hopefully getting a chance to meet with someone, they're going to look you up on IMDb, and you, you can certainly, you know, refer to you on credits. So mm-hmm. I, I, I appreciate the concern, but I think um, I think it is, if there is some awareness. Yeah. And now your book. Your book is a national yes. bestseller, Apocalypse, How Turn the End Times into the Best of Times, uh, disaster movies never get old. I love them. Uh, but what prompted you to write this book? Well, there's a couple of things. One of them was the, going back to the Jewish kid growing up in a Christian school. So, you know, I was already, like, um, made familiar with the concept of hell from an early age. So, mm-hmm. you know, all bets were off for me as far as a person. Um, I also grew up, like, in the sort of last years of the, the Cold War when, like, this, the whole idea of, like, being wiped up by the, the bomb could happen. And um, there was that miniseries the day after which was just uh, horrific and i think that just freaked me out for days and mm-hmm. not just because it featured steve gutenberg in a bald mask um but I, uh, I i was sort of spooked by that and i think i at the time i wrote the book i was in in the daily show where you know we we're dealing with a lot of toxic news and just very like disturbing and dark things going on in our culture mm-hmm. and you know as you know we sort of turn those things into irony and sort of saying the opposite of something that really exaggerated cheery you know, thumbs up kind of way um, was our way of coping with that, as you know, as you see on the show. And this was sort of a, a version of that, I think, where I had that voice in my head and uh, I dealt with all these dark scenarios with a really kind of like feel good. Here's why everything's going to be great attitude. Mm-hmm. Very, very cool. And and I know there's a website, apocalypsehowthebook.com. Um, but how right. else can people find the book? Um. Well, uh, it's still on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, and uh, I mean the the website also directs people to that stuff as well. Um, mm-hmm. If you uh, follow my Twitter feed, as I imagine most of the some of the people uh, have heard about this, sent the questions, and um, it's it's just at Apocalypse How one word, and that will also direct you to how to buy it as well. Um, otherwise, uh, you're just gonna have to walk along the sidewalks with those guys who have the towels out, you know, with like the 1978 New York Times cookbook and big book of puzzles and if you're lucky maybe you'll find one there <laughs> i happen to think it'll be the last book anyone will need yeah uh, after the end time so if you want to if you want you could just wait until the big one happens and then just read the book that everyone's reading that i mean talk about a bestseller yeah yeah very cool so at apocalypse how on twitter and you do uh, interact with people on twitter i see that and uh and so people definitely should follow you if they haven't been and i really really appreciate you taking the time today i know we've gone a little bit long but um Really, really appreciate it, and thanks so much uh, just for sharing so much of your wisdom, and I'm sure people are going to love it. Well, cool. It's been fun. Cool. Okay, thanks, Rob. Take care. Bye-bye. So that was my interview with Rob Kuttner. So grateful he could spend the time with us. That's all I have for this week, but I do want to remind you that uh, if you want the latest, like opportunities to ask your questions of these writers, make sure you do follow me on Twitter. At Gray Jones is my handle. And 
If you follow, you can find out who I'm going to be interviewing, which shows I'm going to cover, and you'll have an opportunity to ask your questions. Um, also, speaking of Twitter, if you go to tvwriterpodcast.com, not only do you have access to older episodes, but you also have access to the TV Writer Twitter database, which contains several hundred Twitter addresses for your favorite writers. So uh, if you are looking to connect, that's a great way to do it. TVWriterPodcast.com. Look for the Twitter database. You'll find also other helpful resources there, and I urge you to check them out. Um, so until next time, I want to thank you for watching and or listening. I do want to remind you this is a video podcast. You can watch it at TVWriterPodcast.com, um, and you can also access it on iTunes. And if you want the MP3-only version, you can go to the Script Magazine iTunes account. That, is, again, is for the MP3 audio version. Go to scriptmag.com to find the details for that or the Script Magazine account. And for the video version, you can go to tvwriterpodcast.com and or um, look for TV Writer Podcast on iTunes. Until next time, thanks for watching. Bye-bye. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and scriptmag.com, the leading source for script writing information in print and on the web. And by Final Draft Script Writing Software, the entertainment industry standard for script writing worldwide. Uh -huh.